So good morning, y'all. Uh, my name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that you're here. Lots of places that you could be this morning, and I, I believe the Lord's got you here for a reason. What you saw just then is a, a new series that we're starting today for about three weeks. We, if you're new to, to our church family, 98% of our teaching and preaching is expository. And by that, I mean we walk through, we walk through a book of the, of the Bible and we preach verse by verse. And that's what we do 98% of the time. But we, we, we maintain the, I, this is going to sound weird, we maintain the right to, if we feel led, to, to veer off temporarily. And what we're doing today is we're going to veer off for a, for a few weeks, probably three or four and we're going to talk about this collision between Christianity and culture. And, and last week, we're walking through Acts right now, if you haven't been here. And we've been walking through the book of Acts for, I don't know, probably three or four months. And we're in chapter 8. And we saw last week, the, uh, on the heels of Stephen being, uh, being stoned to death, we saw the, this early church in Jerusalem. And it was probably twenty to 30,000 people scatter. And they went off into the world. Well, what they, they went off into the world, into the culture in Judea, Samaria, and ultimately they're going to go to the ends of the earth. There's a clash between the world and between the Christian faith. And so that's what we're going to do. And so what, you know, ultimately since the, the birth of the church, which we saw in Acts chapter 2, there have been people who have spread false teaching about what it means to be a Christ follower, about what it means to be part of the people of God. And this false teaching, it's external to the church. The culture, the world is bombarding the church, God's people with, with falsehoods, but it also comes from inside the church. And so we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. Paul considered these, these teachings, these principles, these beliefs to be hollow and deceptive. And he warns Christians to be careful about what they believe to be true, to be careful about what they let, uh, and, and by they I mean us, what we let into our minds. And he, and he tells us to stand firm uh, in the truth of the gospel, to stand firm in the truth claims that, that his word provides us. The world and some preachers and some teachers and some churches water down the gospel, either add to it or, or subtract something away from it. Even spread and attach false things alongside of it. Now, being aware that that exists, being aware of that is not enough. You and I have got to, got, got to make a conscious, intentional decision, a conscious choice to stand firm in the truth of the gospel message. And so, we're going to jump out of Acts for a few weeks, and we're going to we're going to kind of talk through this. We're going to kind of address all of that. Since the beginning, the the Christian faith has been on a on a collision course with the culture, because the the, the values of the world do not align with the values of our faith. The priorities of the world do not align with the priorities of our faith. The kingdom of man is not seeking the same things that the kingdom of God is. So we should not be surprised to experience conflict 
and tension. We ought to almost kind of wear the conflict and tension as a badge, as a badge of honor. We ought to see the conflict and the tension as confirmation that we are doing the right thing. We're warned throughout Scripture of this. Y'all, have you ever been on a, out on a hike or out on a walk and you go through some thick brush or some mud or some muck or some, some black ice, some ice where you didn't know it was there? And you're, every time you take a step, you're not sure uh, if you, when you put your foot down whether you're going to roll an ankle or whether you're going to find solid ground or whether you're going to step in, you know, in 12 or 18 inch thick mud or whether you're going to step on some ice that you didn't know was there and slip. And y'all back in the day, and my wife is probably going to kill me for telling you this story. I'm just going to go ahead and say it, but I'm like, I'm, I'm so transparent about stuff. Back in the day when you used to get a newspaper delivered to the house, you remember this? Y'all know what a newspaper is, right? First of all, you got to know what a newspaper is. Well, we got it delivered, the Columbus Ledger Inquirer. We got it delivered every day to the house. And they would deliver that newspaper like, I don't know, maybe like 4 o'clock in the morning. And kids, a lot of kids' first job was, was a newspaper route, you know, and they'd ride around on their bicycle or whatever tossing newspapers in driveways. And so we got the newspaper every day. And I'd go to get, up, you know, I'd get up pretty early. And it was about 5 o'clock probably, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. On a super cold winter morning, I had my bathrobe on, and I may or may not have had anything else on <laughs> under the bathrobe, and that's an image that you're not going to be able to remove from your mind. But we wa I walked out, and, and it had rained the night before, and it, the temperature fell down into the low 20s, and it was freezing cold, and I was bebopping across the driveway to get my newspaper, and I mean... I just went flying, robe went flying, landed flat on my back. And if you've ever had the breath knocked out of you, if you played football or whatever, or if you've fallen, every bit of breath just left my body. And I was laying in the driveway on my back, almost praying for death because I, I, I couldn't breathe. And I'm, the bathrobe's out. I did have the newspaper in my hand, but it, it, was, it was terrible. And so, like, those types of um, death-defying sort of adventures are very much like walking through life trying to depend on the wisdom that the world provides you. You're just never quite sure that you're going to land on solid ground because the principles and the values and the beliefs and the worldview and the everything that the world provides for us are constantly shifting, constantly changing. They're constantly slippery. You're going to slip and slide down a path that you don't want to be on. But what we learn from the Lord is to trust in the eternally consistent. Scripture is consistent, and it is eternally consistent. And we learn or need to learn and continue to learn to trust in the consistency of God's Word. And so we're going to be a little bit today kind of all over scripture, but I believe that the, the, the entirety of scripture speaks to this issue. Foundationally, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, or, or maybe undergirding this whole message is Colossians chapter 2, uh, particularly verse 8. But I want to give you a little back, before we jump into verse 8, I want to give you a little background on Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and it and really, because it's not a new issue, this issue that I'm talking about, it's not, it's not a new issue. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote Colossians, he learned from a guy named Epaphras that the church, the Colossian church, was being threatened by false teaching. Partly pagan, part of that false teaching came from the pagan world, part of that false teaching came from the, the Jewish world, and it was almost like, like it was a kind of, uh, this is not accurate, but it was almost like a Jewish paganism kind of thing that was beginning to permeate this church. The Jewish element of, the, uh, of that church population claimed that true believers had to observe certain days, that it was all about Jewish holidays, uh, that they had to deny themselves certain foods, they had to keep kosher, they had to, uh, it was all about the Levitical di dietary laws. They, 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 they claimed that you had to follow certain rituals, particularly circumcision, and they made those things salvific. They made those things, like if you want to be a Christian, and you're a male, you got to be circumcised. Now, the pagan element was all about worshiping angels, and it was all about some, some crazy, mystical kind of wisdom thing. Probably this was an early form of Gnosticism, if you've ever heard that word, Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-I-S. -S. Gnosticism became super prevalent in the second century. Gnosticism emphasized that word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, means knowledge. And so Gnosticism kind of emphasized that salvation came through knowledge, particularly some secret knowledge, rather than through faith. And you got this knowledge through astrology or, or magic or, or some crazy mystical experience. Another major belief in, in Gnosticism is that matter is evil, that physical, anything physical is bad. Only spiritual things are good. The body is bad and evil and anything that is in the physical world, in the created world, any of that is bad and only spiritual things are good. So they taught that God in Christ never could have become a human person. If matter is evil, how could God become flesh because flesh is evil. So they had to either deny the humanity of Christ or they had to deny the divinity of Christ. He could not possibly have been both. And so Paul writes to the Colossian Christians uh, of the, these errors in doctrine and these errors in practice. And listen, doctrine is important. It, it is. We got to have right beliefs. We got to have our head on right. We got to think biblically. We got to have a biblical worldview. And so Paul wrote to this church of these errors and he warned against ritualism and he warned against strict rules and uh, about the acceptance or the or not accepting certain food and certain drink and religious festivals and circumcision. Paul wrote and he warned against the the thought that the body is evil, that physical things are evil. He warned against relying on on human philosophy and human wisdom and human knowledge. He warned against trying to obtain some secret knowledge like you would hold the key to salvation. He warned against wor uh, worshiping angels. He warned against making Jesus anything less than the very Son of God. That happens in the world today. I believe my whole life, first 36 years of my life. But yeah, he's some prophet. He's probably some good dude. He's probably some 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 first century rabbi that, that taught us how we probably ought to live. And that was about as far as I, 
at least that's about as far as I could take it. But Paul writes and he warns against that. And he recognized that the most, de- uh, the most dangerous element of this heresy is the, the, is the deprecation of Christ, the lowering of who he was. And so Paul focused much of his attention in this book, in Colossians, in this letter, on the supremacy of Christ. You want to read the most Jesus-centric, Jesus-focused book in the Bible? It's Colossians. Now today we don't hear much about Gnosticism. Although you will, if you turn on the Discovery Channel, you'll see the the Gnostic Gospels. And they'll tell you about the, the lost Gospels. Like those books should be included in Scripture. No, they shouldn't. You know what you have in your Bible? You have exactly what God intended to be in your Bible. If the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Peter, if any of those things, if the Lord intended those to be in your Bible, they'd be in your Bible. So the Gnostic, the Gnostic Gospels, they're books. I mean, they're legit, real books, but they're not, in, they're not the inspired Word of God. Do you all get that? So don't buy into this garbage on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel like, like God made a mistake. God made a mistake and you're missing, you're missing some books that you need to read. No. And so we don't hear a lot about Gnosticism today, but the, 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 the false kind of doctrines are still out there. That there's some secret knowledge, that there's some mystical way to come to Christ, that, that human philosophy is what it's all about, that, that they tend to have a universalist kind of worldview that, that all roads lead to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you just believe something. Like your believing something is what gets you there. But the reality is it's the object of your faith. It's not just faith. It's the object of your faith. Who is the object of our faith? Jesus Christ. And he's unique. And it is an exclusive club. But it's an exclusive club that everybody can get into. We're going to talk about that today as well. And there's plenty, y'all, there's plenty of false teachers. There's plenty of false teaching that goes on in the world today. I spent, I don't know, maybe five or six hours this week just listening and reading and, and looking at different things that come out of, of the umbrella of what, what some would call uh, Christendom out of the Christian world. And we're not, look, we're not talking about it's our baptismal. That's where we do the God plunge. We're not talking about disagreements of, between sprinkling to baptize and immersion to baptize. That's just a disagreement. That, that's not heresy. I believe that scripture is clear that the word baptizo means to immerse. So when we baptize, when somebody takes God plunge, they should be immersed. But I'm not going to throw a stone at somebody if they believe that you should be sprinkled. I believe that you cannot lose your salvation if you are saved. I think scripture is clear on it. But there's plenty of Bible-believing, saved, going to heaven, Jesus-loving people who believe that you can. Like, okay, I'm not fighting about that. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about heresy. I'm talking about things that are salvific, things that have to do with salvation. So I just want to... I want to tell you because you got to guard your mind right and and I want to tell you just some stuff that I read and that I heard first one said if you're sick and your faith is strong enough you will be physically healed 
Now, on the other side of that is if you're sick and you're not healed, then your faith must not have been strong enough. Dude, don't buy into that lie. That is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. It, it, it is. I read that God wants you materially rich. I'm telling you, God's unconcerned with your bank account. I mean, I don't think he's, it's not about that. But this pastor said, God wants you material rich. I heard another one say, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is from Satan. Who told you, who told you to deny yourself in the scripture? Oh, so Jesus is from Satan. This came out of the words of a pastor last year. Heard another one say, prosperity is a major requirement in the establishment of God's will. Heard another one that said this, quote, it just boils down to this. We have to live by faith and trust in God. That sounds good, does it not? But there's more. We just have to, we have to live by faith and trust in God. In him, we have already been delivered from the curse. As a Christian, we are protected from danger. There will be no sickness, lack, or any other bad thing that's under the curse. Like, raise your hand if you've ever suffered. You must all not be Christians, and I must not be a Christian, because we're protected from all that. We should not have danger. We should not be sick. And, and he says, this guy that said this, God promised us in Psalm 91, I will rescue those who love me. You think that's talking about physical rescue? It can be applied maybe a little bit there. He's talking about rescuing you from hell. That's what scripture, that's what God is concerned about. I'm not saying that God wants you to be physically sick. I'm not saying God wants you to break your leg or be paralyzed or have a heart attack. I'm not saying any of that. But his concern is with your eternity. His concern is not with, with our necessarily, with our 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this planet. His concern is with our, our eternity. Heard another one say this. Can you believe there are still people that believe that we need to preach repentance? Oh, there's a shocker. How about this one? When we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. I'm going to tell you that me and you don't have the ability to put twist God's arm behind his back and leave him no choice but to do something. Another one said, I affirm that the stripes placed on Jesus Christ at his crucifixion Provide physical healing to all who will believe enough and receive. All this stuff, y'all, is false. It's just all false. Heard of pastor, biggest church in America. I don't know when it was, four or five years ago, on the Larry King show. So any of y'all remember Larry King's show? Larry King's, I think it was on CNN. It was a news talk kind of show. And he has this guy, Larry King's Jewish. So what an opportunity. The guy's sitting there, and Larry King says to him, okay, 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 is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? And the pastor said, well, I wouldn't go that far. Well, bro, how far would you go? I mean, either he is the only way, I am the way, the truth, and the light, or he's not. What a golden opportunity with tens of millions of people viewing, and, and it was just blown. So Colossians 2.8. And I like the NIV translation. We're typically in the ESV, but I like the NIV translation 
of Colossians 2.8, and it says this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, remember, this is Paul writing to this church that is infiltrated with false teaching. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. What does that tell you? That tells you that you can be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Whether you're a believer or not, you can be. And this hollow and deceptive philosophy depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And so in this one verse, Paul warns me and you about the world's logic and the world's belief system and the world's values. And he calls us to stand firm on a different set of values on Christ. But for all of us, for them and for us, even when we stand firm on the things of, of God, we will still be faced and bombarded with the values of the world constantly. It's a constant barrage. So how is it that we know when we hear something, how do we know that that something is worldly? How do we know when we hear something that that something that we're hearing is godly? How do we know when we're being led astray or, or worse, being held captive by some the world's principles or the world's teachings or the world's worldview? Worldview makes a difference. The set of lenses that you look at everything through, it makes a difference. We should be viewing everything in our lives through the lens of the cross, through the lens of God's word. And so I want to jump back a little bit to that illustration I brought up a few minutes ago about, I'm not trying to paint that image in your mind again, but about the, 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 the muck or the mud or the ice or whatever walking through hazardous conditions and regarding the world's principles and the world's teachings, I said this, I said, you're never quite sure you're going to land on solid ground. Well, why is that? Because the world's principles, the world's values, the world's beliefs are constantly shifting and constantly changing. It's a very important lesson to remember that the world's values are inconsistent. You should have a... Uh, a worship guide, and that's one of the fill-in-the-blanks, that the world's values are inconsistent. You think about the world we live in today and the prevalence of social media. I want to remind us about something that, that we're all familiar with, and it's all the different memes and the mottos and the slogans and the principles of the world, and they might look good on a billboard, or they might look good on Instagram, or they might look good on some cool Facebook post, things like, always follow your heart. It will lead you to truth. Well, no, it won't. We're going to talk about that in a second. Do what makes you happy no matter what anybody says because it's about your happiness. Or, or if it's true for you, then it's true. Like, that's nonsense because I could stand up here and tell you I would die for the belief. I believe that one plus one equals three. And I believe it. In my heart, in my mind, I would die for the belief that one plus one equals three. But the reality is mathematics is independent of my stupidity. Right? It's independent. It either equals two or it doesn't equal two. My belief, as, as honest and fervent as it might be, does not affect reality. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ 
walked out of this grave alive or he did not walk out of the grave alive. There's not a, there's, there's, it's not gray. It either happened or it didn't happen. And my belief doesn't make it true. And my unbelief doesn't make it true. It's independent of my belief. That's a major principle, y'all. Now, these, these, I don't know what we'd call them, these, these Instagram life wisdom things, they sound good enough, but the problem is they're inconsistent and they're shaky and they're contrary to the teachings of Scripture. Very often, they're contrary to the teachings of Scripture. The Word says in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this is one passage, one verse about the heart. I could give you 50 different passages in Scripture that speak to the depravity of the human heart. The world says, follow your heart. But Scripture warns us that our heart is wicked and desperately sick and confusing. We talk about being happy. And look, I'm not, I'm not you know, don't, don't get morbid on me. I'm not also saying that the Lord wants you to be unhappy. I'm saying that the Lord is way more concerned with your joy than he is with your temper. Happiness is bound by time and circumstance. Joy is eternal. There's a radical difference in those two things. He said, Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, whoever loses his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the world says that you need to make sure that you're happy no matter what. You need to make sure that you are happy. But Jesus says we should be willing to lose our life for his sake. Meaning that we would be willing to trade all of the stuff that tends to make us happy in, in, in our kingdom for the sake of his kingdom. In his kingdom, amazingly enough, we find true, authentic, abiding joy. In our kingdom, we may find some temporal happiness. I'm not saying that we wouldn't. Anybody ever have buyer's remorse? Anybody ever bought a car like the coolest car I'm talking about? A Pinto. <laughs> a Gremlin. And you drive off the lot. It, it's seconds, y'all, when you have buyer's remorse. When I was in real estate and I'd be working with a buyer. You ever, raise your hand if you bought a house ever in your life. Okay. Did you have, sort of immediately after you signed the piece of paper, did you have a little bit of buyer's remorse? Like almost everybody does. So when I spent years in real estate, I would get these little prescription bottles and I would put a label on them that said buyer's remorse pills and I'd put M&Ms in them. And when we would sign a contract with a buyer, I would give them that bottle and I said, as soon as you walk out, you're going to start questioning yourself and you're going to start thinking, I shouldn't have bought this house. It costs too much. The payment's too much. We can't afford it. They're, the bank's going to take it back. I'd say, here's some buyer's remorse pills. You take them. They'll make you feel better. Every, that happens to everybody. Deep abiding joy is what we find when we lock on to Christ. It's not bound by time. It's timeless. It's eternal. The heart is constantly changing. It's constantly inconsistent. The heart falls in and out of love with any number of things. 
Happiness is an ever-moving target that changes constantly every day, maybe every second. Think about all these things. How, if you ask yourself this question, how could you build anything based on those worldly principles? You think about that question, I want to read you Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's Jesus' longest block of instruction anywhere in the Scripture. And, and, and the Sermon on the Mount is this, this long message on what it looks like to be a Christ follower. On You want a job description of being a Christian? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's all about walking a Christian life. And toward the end of it, in chapter 7, Here's what he says about building our lives. It's almost like all of what he says in 5 and 6 and most of 7 builds up to this that starts in verse 24. He says, everyone then, and when he says that, he's saying, everyone, because of all the stuff that I've been teaching you, who hears these words of mine that I've been teaching you and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Why didn't it fall? Because it had been founded on the rock. And then he juxtaposes that against this. And everyone who hears, that was a cool word, juxtapose. It just came out. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a fool who, who builds his house on the sand. And the same rains came, and the same floods came, and the same winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And he doesn't say just that it fell. He says it fell, and great, cataclysmically, it fell. So Jesus here, he's commanding us to listen and to obey his teaching. And when we do, we'll be, we'll be standing on firm, solid ground. I look like a Georgia linebacker standing on firm ground and people could hit me and, and I'm not going to fall over because I'm grounded and founded and undergirded by the rock. Well, what is the rock? The rock is ultimately, it's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. So the gospel undergirds everything in my life. You know, I think about my own personal experience when I tell you that all, out of all the different values and and thoughts and teachings that the world throws at us, none of them are going to allow you to stand firm when the going gets tough. Not if, because it is going to get tough. And the everything that the world tells you is not going to allow you to stand firm in that. But Scripture will, because it's undergirded by Christ. Everything the world says is like the shifting sands of inconsistency. So why is it so attractive? Why does it sound so appealing to follow my heart? Why does it sound so appealing to look for whatever makes me happy? Why, why, why is that? Because it does, right? It does. Why? It's because the world's values are seductive. Satan is not stupid. He's not coming at us with a cape and a pitchfork. No, he's coming at us with stuff that is luring and attractive and seductive and enticing. But either way now, the truth is that many things and words and stuff of the world that the world tries to provide us and tell us and, 
they can all look and sound super attractive when we hear and see them. They do. Timothy, young pastor in, in Ephesus, and Paul's writing to him about, uh, about kind of had a shepherd a group of people, and he's given him advice, and Timothy is Paul's spiritual son, and he tells him in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, he says, this is such an appropriate verse or passage. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's coming. They're not going to endure sound teaching. They're not going to endure sound doctrine because they want, they're going to hear what they want to hear. It's what Paul tells Timothy. Paul knew that many people would spend like their entire lives searching for a truth that lines up with their lifestyle. Like I'm, I can go find me a preacher that's going to tell me that the way I'm living is okay when in fact it's not okay. I can find it. I promise you I can find it. You tell me the lifestyle and I'll find you a church that says it's okay. I'll find you a pastor that says it's okay. Paul's warning Timothy of that. In addition, many people reject the truth claims that, that scripture make because they are in opposition to the lifestyle that we're living. It is just inherent in us to, to try to justify our sin. Like, I'm not going to justify your sin, but I'll justify my sin. You're not going to justify mine. You're going to justify yours. And, and, and you're going to search for scripture and you're going to search for teaching that will say it's okay to do or live in whatever way that you want to live. People receive something, and by that I mean scripture. People receive something that is meant to bring conviction, not condemnation, y'all. Don't hear that. It's meant to bring conviction and they ignore it as useless. So we have got to be people who are continuously filling our ears and our minds and our eyes and our hearts with the only real truth that we can find in this world and it's found in the, page, in the pages of your, of your Bible. And it's full of practical life principles that will allow us to live an abundant life. Allow us to live the, to live the abundant life that that Jesus promises to bring us in John chapter 10. He specifically addresses this. <clears throat> the Bible says, and, and these are Jesus' words, that the thief, the adversary, the deceiver, Satan, the devil, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Y'all, that is what he does. And he's been doing it a long time, and he's good at it. So Jesus says, he comes, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And what the devil cannot destroy, completely ruin and, and crush and destroy, he's going to seek to distract. And he'll steal a little bit of your time. And he'll steal a little bit of your resources. And he'll steal a little bit of your treasure. And he'll steal just a little bit of your attention. Look, he doesn't have to get you 180 degrees off. He just got to get you a little bit off. Because he gets you a little bit off, a little bit distracted, Six months from now, you'll be way off and, and way distracted. And we got to stand firm on the word of God. So Jesus promises to provide abundant or full life to his sheep, to his flock. One of the very first images 
that comes in my mind is, is in Psalm 23, and, it's, and, and the psalmist is describing a cup, and he describes that cup as being filled to overflowing by the shepherd who is the Lord. So abundance of life points to the depth of our living now and the length of our living in eternity. It's not only a life as good as it can possibly be, but it's a life that is beyond everything and anything that we could ever, ever imagine. Jesus gave that full life to this blind man who had been abandoned by his parents and ostracized and, and rejected by the entire religious system in John chapter 9. And, and so it's, it, he provided that kind of life to him. And it's clearly not a life that denies problems. I'm not denying problems. I'm not, it's not a life that denies the problems. It's not a life that denies pain. It's a life that faces the problems and faces the pain and makes use of them. It's Romans 8, 28, y'all. When, when, when he takes all of the events of our life as a believer, and Romans 8, 28, again, is a promise to, to believers, not to unbelievers, that he can, he'll take everything in our life, everything. And if you're a believer, he'll stir it all up in a pot and do something good with it. So it's, it's a life that, that faces these things and makes use of them. Instead of letting us focus on, on the ups and the downs of life, Jesus takes us deep into life itself where in, the, in this hellacious storm, there's a calm center. He promises us peace in the storm. He doesn't promise us a stormless life. Y'all get that? True abiding peace. Not no rain, not no thunder, not no lightning, but peace in the middle of it. Later on, Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't say you might. He said in this world you will have trouble. And he wasn't leading his followers into a life of guaranteed earthly happiness and prosperity. So many people have this twisted, jacked up view of Christianity that if you say yes to the offer of salvation, that all of a sudden in that instant that life is going to be a bed of roses and you're going to be materially rich and you're going to, and you're going to be all holy and you're going to, and you're going to never sin. And, and all, all of that is just not true because we're in this world. And we've got this rucksack of skin and flesh and bones that, that still wants and desires sin. Ultimately, we will win at the end. But there's a battle that takes place. There's a battle. So as you, as you learn how to recognize the worldly values that don't line up with the kingdom of God... You need to also, me and you, need. we need to spend time and energy and brain space seeking after and chasing after the values that do line up with the kingdom. So the world can be and is all the time seductive and enticing and, uh, and, and lures us in. And because of that, you and I have got to always allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. You've got to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. It's not enough to just say, uh, to just say no to the things and the values of the world. Flip that slide. 
We got it's not enough just to say no. We got to take it a step further and say yes to the things of God. As a Christ follower, you and I have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guide, as a comforter, as a counselor. He strengthens us in the effort. John chapter 14. These again, these are Jesus' words. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus invites us to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. Listen, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the text of the Word of God. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to, when you pick up a Bible, to allow you to, to, to begin to understand it. And the more you pick it up and dive in and dig and read and study, the more the Holy Spirit pours into your mind and in your heart, allowing you to understand it more. And so he, He's constantly working on us. When you begin to follow the Lord's leading, you'll be able to experience this true, lasting, real joy. And I wish I could tell you that, that I had these Holy Spirit-guided moments all 24-7, 365, that I just walked through life, me and Susan holding hands, singing Kumbaya, and the Holy Spirit's just leading us every day, and, and, and we're so all, all the time in tune, and, and that my prayer life is just this model of perfection, and if you want to learn how to have a good prayer life, just hang out with me every day. No, it, I wish I could tell you that. But, but that's, just not, that's just not the case. Because I got the flesh and there's a battle in my life just like there's a battle in your life. But sometimes, like sometimes, anybody remember Howie Long? Howie Long was an incredible football player for the Oakland Raiders. Meanest team in the NFL. And he used, you remember Howie Long? You're too young to remember Howie Long. Oh, that's right. Howie Long was a beast. And Howie Long used to say, he's a, commentator now he used to say I'm a nice guy I'm a nice guy but sometimes I flip a switch and it's Howie time he used to say and when it's Howie time you just better look out so sometimes it's Holy Spirit time and it just things change and and I remember in December 2017 Jeff Murphy who's the pastor uh, in the church before me he and his wife Christy and Great, we're great friends, and Susan and Christy still to this day great friends. Jeff and I are still great friends, and I called Jeff beginning of December of seventeen because something was going on at work. I was working in the real estate office, something that I just wasn't crazy about, and I said I had to leave him a message. I said, Jeff, hey, call me back. I just want to talk. Maybe we can meet. I just want to talk. And two minutes later, he called me back, and he said, Hey, can me can me and Christy uh, can me and Christy and you and Susan have lunch tomorrow because we want to talk too. And we sat down to eat and uh, the next day, and he shared with us that they felt super called and led to, to move, step down as the pastor here and move to Lynchburg, Virginia. He was taking a job at Liberty University, and he said to me, do you still feel called into full-time vocational ministry? And I said, yeah, I do. I do. He said, well, that's good because I recommended that the elders call you as the pastor. And I'm like, shouldn't you have asked this question before you? But anyway, anyway, he said that, and and, and, I'd, and I'd run away from ministry for several years probably. But we're sitting there and he asked that question. And, and I said yes. And we agreed to, to not say anything to anybody, to pray about it for a month. And then we'd meet again in January, middle of January. 
and would see if, if we all felt sort of the same way. And to be honest, I loved my job. Like, I loved my job. It was a great job, and I loved it. I loved shepherding 150 to 200 agents, and it was like a pastoral role in this real estate office, and, and I did love the job, and, and it was a good job, and it provided pretty good for our family. And, and so, honestly, Susan was, I'm not throwing you under the bus, baby, but she was a little anxious about it. And I, maybe I was a little bit anxious, but I've just always been the guy that if, if I feel led by something, I'm just going to do it. But she had some anxiety. And so one night we're sitting there right before Christmas uh, of 17, and I had my Bible software open, and I'm trying to, to, to uh, I'm searching for passages about discerning God's will. Raise your hand if you have just figured out how to discern God's will. I put my hands down here. Like, like. It's hard. It's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. I wanted to go to the mailbox, and God wrote me a letter telling me bullet points of what to do. It just doesn't work that way. So I got in Scripture, and I'm trying to look at different passages, different verses that talk about um, uh, how to recognize doors that are open and how to recognize doors that are closed and, and how to discern what He wants for your life and what your purpose is and all this stuff, and it is a struggle, and, and she was struggling with it, and I was struggling with it, and, but I felt really called, and so I'm not saying I was trying to coerce my wife, but, but I said I had about 25 different passages up in front of me in my, in my Bible software, and she's sitting on the couch, and her Bible is next to her, and I said, grab your Bible, and I said, turn to, I had 20 or 30 passages in front of me, and I said, turn, I picked one, and I said, turn to it. Well, she grabs her Bible, she turns to it, and that verse is either underlined or highlighted in her Bible. And I don't know how many I went through, but it was more than one, and it was less than probably 15. It was probably five or six, and all of those, all of those things were highlighted or underlined, or she had a note written next to them, and who knows when that happened, but sometime over the previous four or five years, and finally she just closed the Bible and said, I'm good, we're in. You know, and, and, and maybe that's not this huge thing, but it sure was edifying for the two of us. It sure was a here's your sign thing for us. And I feel like that was the, the Holy Spirit allowing us to jump in line with God's will. And it came through the text of Scripture. It came through us digging in the Bible. Y'all, it takes devotion, and it takes effort, and it takes time, and it takes intentionality to learn how to, how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit as you, as you follow the teachings of Scripture. And there'll always be trials, and there's always, there'll always be temptations to, to get you to veer off the path and go traipsing through the mud and the muck and the black ice. But all of those temptations and all of those trials, they're all temporary. They're all temporary. All the temptations are temporary, much like the rewards that they promise. Abundant life is found in the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit was given as a helper to help us, lead us, guide us along the way. There is a battle taking place. And that battle is between the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the things of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the world is trying to draw you in to its values that are inconsistent and shaky. They're seductive and alluring and enticing. And they're ultimately, they are always destructive. Because he is seeking 
to destroy you. Today, as we kind of start this series, we all have an opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit to guide us into biblical truth and into the one thing that we can stand firm on, and that's God's Word. So this first step is to recognize and to call out things that are false, things that the world throws at you that are false, principles that are false. You may have already bought into some of these things and you don't even know that you bought into it. Gauge it and measure it against Scripture. Always follow your heart. It'll lead you into truth. No, it won't. You're an army of one. You can do anything. Well, no, you can't. Do what makes you happy. No matter what anybody or the world says, do what makes you happy. If it's true for you, then it's true. All of those things are lies. And the next step is admitting how attractive some of those principles are. And it does us no good to pretend that they're not attractive because they are attractive. But it also does us no good to, to think that we can just simply avoid pervasive false teaching because we don't like it. Get into a rhythm of standing firm on the gospel. When you hear something questionable, if I say something questionable standing right here, call me out. I ain't perfect. I'm way far from perfect. And if I say something, measure it. Don't measure it against what the world says. Don't even measure it against what the person next to you says. Measure it against Scripture. And if I say something that is contrary to Scripture, somebody needs to talk to me about it. That's the yard, this is the yardstick that we measure stuff against. Finally, we trust in the, in the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. I want to wrap this up with a story about a guy, true story, about a guy that was part of a pretty big church, second or third largest church in the country. These are his words, not my words. He said, in the 10 years of attending, I never once heard a message on sin and repentance, which is the heart of the gospel. He said, I started attending such and such church in March of 2009. He said, a friend invited me, so I took him up on the offer. I was glad at the time I did because it was amazing. I attended my first small group, which was a study group taught by a former, can y'all hear me? Did I flash in and out though? Okay. A Bible study group taught by a former pastor in the fall semester of 09. I joined the team in 2010 as a small group co-leader. He said, I was baptized and I went through their membership class in 2012. And after the conference, I received the gift of tongues. I was ready to move into the purpose that God had created for me. So I started asking God to reveal his purposes in my life. And he called me to serve in a prison ministry. And so I joined the prison ministry team in 2014. And then I became a small group leader at the prison. He said, I was plugged into nearly every single program the church had to offer. And I did my part to constantly promote our local church. Yet in all the 10 years of attendance at such and such church, I never once shared the gospel with anyone because I couldn't clearly explain it because I never heard it. I figured if I just invited a person to church that the pastor preaching that day would somehow kind of go over it. He said, I was under the belief that I was saved because of all the stuff that I did and the changes that occurred in my life. He had real changes occurring in his life, but he was under the assumption, under the belief that he was saved because of all the stuff that he did, all the programs that he was part of. Not bad programs, 
Not bad programs, but good programs, I guess. He said, I would have forsaken all to serve the church. I was under a spell. Thankfully, I witnessed something at the prison facility in 2019 that raised my concern, and this started my year-long search for clarity and truth. Each week at the prison, I witnessed inmates raising their hands and checking a box on the connection card, hoping for salvation when the invitation was given. He said, but each week the same people kept raising their hands, meaning that they didn't understand what happened the week before. Since I wasn't taught the true gospel, I couldn't explain the gospel to them. I realized again that I'd been at church for years, this church for years, nearly every Sunday, and not ever heard the gospel clearly explained. No repentance, nothing about sin. He goes on and says, God is faithful, and he continued to provide information to me bit by bit until the answers became clear. Y'all, the gospel is not bloodless. The gospel is not repentantless. The cross was messy and painful and bloody and beautiful and wondrous and grace-filled and justifying. All of the above happened outside of the city gates in Jerusalem. The way to recognize a counterfeit is not to study the counterfeit. Does that principle make sense? The way to recognize a counterfeit is to study and learn the real deal. Don't study the counterfeit. Study God's word. I hope that makes sense. So I want to lay out the gospel crystal clear. The scripture that goes along with the gospel script, uh, crystal, crystal clear. Anything more or less is false. The gospel minus repentance is false. And so if you have never said yes to the offer, I want you to, to hear it crystal clear today. Number one, you've got to admit that you're a sinner and repent. You cannot be saved without some amount of self-awareness that you're a sinner. And you cannot without repentance. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, not one. And Romans 3.23, at least the beginning of Romans 3.23, says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some have sinned. Not everybody, everybody but Caitlin has sinned. Sorry. All have sinned. Zach, I'm sorry. She is a sinner too. So you got to admit you're a sinner and you got to repent. You got to understand that God will get the sin paid for. He expects and will receive payment for the sin. And the payment is death and hell. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Revelation 21 says this in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Your sin is getting paid for. By you, because you can if you choose that, or by him. Number three, he paid for it. He paid a debt that wasn't his to pay. It was yours to pay. Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
As I'm spitting in his face, he died for me. As I'm throwing rocks at him, he died for me. As I'm in the middle of sin, he died for me. That is unfathomable love. Who would do that? Only God would do that. He wants to give us a gift, the rest of Romans 6.23. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now understand, free to who? Free to me and you. It wasn't costless. It wasn't free to him. So the million dollar question then really is, how do I get Jesus so I can have eternal life? Well, I got to cry out for him to save me. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not 50% of you are going to be saved. If you do that, you will be saved. Verse 10 goes on and says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. No distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say that just the good people. It doesn't say the people that work in the prison ministry and the homeless ministry and the, and the this and the that. It's everyone. The worst nastiest, most horrific, sinful person that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do y'all get that? I don't care what you've done. He don't care what you've done. Are there consequences in this world for what you've done? Probably so. I'd rather pay the world's consequences and live eternally with Christ. What kind of awesome deal is that? So don't tell me that you don't know what I've done. Don't tell me I'm not savable. Don't tell me I've done too much bad in my life. Don't tell me that. Scripture, the world is going to tell you that. The devil is going to tell you that. When you're getting close, he's going to whisper in your ear that you're not worthy. Tell him to get the hell out of your face. Because it's not true. Because the Scripture, God's Word says otherwise. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Y'all, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. So how do you do that? Typically, we do it through prayer. I'm going to lead you through a little prayer. They ain't, these ain't magic words. These are kind of the words that I said in January of 01. They're not magic words. You can scream them out right now if you never have. You can say them to yourself. You can think them to yourself. But if you've never said yes, somehow let these words get in your mind and get them out somehow, and the Holy Spirit will live in you and guide you and help you and counsel you. And it's really, y'all bow your heads if you would. Everybody bow your heads. Close your eyes and it's, say this along with me if you want to. It's just really, Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm a sinner and I am in need of rescue. Because of my sin, I deserve to go to hell. But I do believe that you died on a cross to take a, to take a debt that wasn't yours to take. It was mine to take. 
and your love allowed you, your love, you willingly went and hung on the cross and you took care of it for me. Lord, I repent of my sin. I turn away from it and I turn towards you. Lord, save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, that is a response to the gospel. And the gospel demands a response. You may have already done that. You may have been saved for, for 40 years. I don't know. But the gospel demands a response. You know, it's like this guy at that church. Yeah, he worked in the prison ministry. It's a good thing. You know, yeah, he, he led small groups. Good thing. But those things don't cause you to be saved. Your salvation causes you to want to do those things. Get the order right, y'all. You know, M2540, which is our homeless ministry, it stands for Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, which is truly, I say to you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. We're having a Thanksgiving outreach. I think I talked about it last week on the 20th, Saturday, the 20th. Huge outreach to the homeless community, all to share the gospel, all to love on this part of our community. Go to the Facebook page, our, the church's Facebook page or M2540's Facebook page and sign up to serve. Sign up to serve. Take a shift of an hour or two. Y'all, when you say yes to the Lord, your want to changes. I want to lead a growth group. I want to go ask so-and-so for forgiveness. I want to forgive so-and-so. I want to serve the homeless. I want to serve people in, in the foster system. I want to go out there and grab an angel off that tree that's out in the hall that, uh, that we heard about this morning. And I want to buy a gift for one of these kids. Your want to or changes. That's what happens when you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Let me pray one more time and I'm going to turn it back over to them. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. It's so undeserved. It's so undeserved. But Lord, I am so thankful that you provide a way out. When the psalmist wrote that you rescue us, this is what he was talking about. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.